Good to see you all. How many of you are glad to be here? Well, most of us. Most of us. <laughs> For the ones of you that aren't, aren't you, would you rather be here or one of the best prisons in the state of Georgia? <laughs> so, see, it's all a matter of perspective. My, my, uh, I had a visit this afternoon from my four-year-old granddaughter who is going to be five tomorrow. And I bet she has reminded me a thousand times over the last few weeks that she's going to be five tomorrow. Isn't it funny that when you're this high, you want to tell everybody about your birthday? And when you're this high, you really don't care that anybody knows, right? It's a weird thing. All right, open up your Bibles. We're going to be landing in uh, Mark 10, but we're going to do a little bit of recap uh, because we covered a lot last week, which is unusual for us, or for me, rather. And so let's do a quick recap. Last week, we talked about the Sanhedrin's plot against Jesus. Uh, Jesus raising Lazarus was a mighty act. It was a miracle. It was a healing. But it was not just that. It really tipped the scales towards his execution. It was Jesus raising Lazarus that caused the the religious leaders to say, we have to do something. Uh, it just caused such a stir. They caused an, called an emergency meeting and said, you know, we got to do something. If we don't do something, the Romans are going to come in. They're going to take away our place as religious leaders. They're going to take away our nation. And, and Caiaphas, the high priest, offers this statement. He says, you guys don't understand. It is better to kill this one man than lose the whole nation. And Scripture gives us a little commentary that says that he said that not knowing that God was prophesying through him as the high priest. So his words were true, but they were not the way he intended them to be. It was an amazing story about how raising someone from the dead kicks off a plan to execute somebody. Um, So this forces Jesus to leave Jerusalem. It forces him to kind of get out of Dodge for a while until it's time to come back that final week of his life. So from that point on, he doesn't come back to Jerusalem until Palm Sunday. But as we pick up the text from here on out, we're going to be picking up text of him moving towards Jerusalem. So we talked about that. Then we talked about this. We talked about Jesus. Jesus healing ten lepers on his way to Jerusalem. And he's on his way, ten lepers holler from afar, because remember, leprosy was considered highly contagious, and leprosy could be anything from a minor skin irritation that didn't clear up to just literal leprosy. And so, because it was deemed so contagious, and because there were no doctors and no medicine or anything else, if you were diagnosed with having leprosy, and the priest would do that, you were shuttled out of town. You could not come back in amongst the community. You had to be, live in isolation until it either cleared or until you died. And because it was considered so contagious that if it, you had leprosy and anybody was approaching you, you would have to holler out from a distance So because it was your responsibility to not let them get so close they could catch it. And so leprosy was a really big deal. And so Jesus is on the move and there's 10 lepers and they're hollering at him from afar and and they want him to heal them. And so rather than healing them, he simply says, go and show yourself to the priest. Because if you were healed of leprosy, you were supposed to show yourself to the priest, and the priest would announce or, or confirm that you had been healed. So Jesus sends them to see the priest before they've even been healed, which is a big act of faith, actually. It's like 
oh, I don't know. I always get in trouble when I shoot from the hip. But it's like having both your feet amputated and Jesus saying, hey, go downtown and buy a pair of sneakers. You know, it's kind of the same thing. And so while they're on their way to the priest, they're healed. They, they suddenly realize their leprosy has been healed. And one out of the ten turns back to thank Jesus and to give God the praise. And the one that turns back is a Samaritan, a foreigner. And we've talked about Samaritans before. They were considered half-breeds. They were so unwelcomed by the Jews that if the Jews had to go from point A to B and it meant going through Samaria, they would go all the way around. And it's not like, you know, I'm going to drive around the outskirts of Augusta to get somewhere. It's you were walking. Okay, so you're really hate somebody if you're willing to put, add another two days on your travel of walking just so you don't go through their territory. But the one that was healed and comes back to praise God is a Samaritan, which infers that the other nine were not. And, and Jesus talks about finding faith in this foreigner that basically wasn't in the Jews. And it's kind of a slam. The story's kind of a slam to the, the Jewish people because here was the Messiah and they couldn't accept him. Not only could they not accept him, but they were now making plans to kill him. And yet a Samaritan would recognize who he was. So we talked about that story and, and he presents it. He presents this probably to the shock of everyone that was listening. It's probably one of those stories that just took their breath away because you don't, you don't tell a story. In, in, let's, let's use our day and time. You don't tell a story in which Adolf Hitler is the hero. That just does not work. That would what it would have felt like to hear that the hero of this story was a Samaritan. It would have felt the same way. So we talked about that. Then we talked about this. Jesus talks about the advent or the coming of the kingdom. Now, some of the Pharisees asked Jesus this question. Hey, when will the kingdom come? How will we know it? When would it actually come? Now, Jesus makes some long statements in this passage, and we went over them. He makes some long statements about the coming of the kingdom, but basically he points out two things. One, the kingdom would not come as they expected it to come. It would not look like they expected it to look. And two... It was already there right in front of their eyes. I mean, those are two big, bold statements. And, uh, and, and I'm sure they didn't get it, to be honest with you. Because remember, Pharisees were asking the question. Pharisees were already planning to kill him. And yet they're kind of baiting him with these questions about the kingdom. And he basically says, you know, not only is it not going to look like you think it will, because they thought it would be a military operation. They thought Jesus, the, the Messiah would be the king of a new army that would kick out the Romans and take Jerusalem and, and all of their land back. And that's what they were expecting. Jesus said, this is not going to go down the way you think it's going to go down. And then he looks at him and says, and you're looking at it right now, which surely made them angry if they even understood what he was saying. And then we went to this. Jesus tells two parables about prayer. It's inter- these parables are interesting because a lot of times when Jesus told parables, he didn't tell you what they were about, what the lesson was. Now, he might later on, when he and his disciples are off by themselves, he would tell the lesson. But in these two parables, he gives you a lesson right up front. It's like an open, open book test, you know. We're having a test, take out your book, find the answers, and then I'll tell you, give you the test. This is kind of what he's doing. And the first parable he tells is the parable of the persistent widow. You know this story. There's this, this judge 
who does not fear God and he has no respect for people. And there's this widow who keeps coming to him repeatedly, repeatedly asking for justice. And, and it says that this judge, although he does not fear God and although he has no respect for people, eventually he will give in to her just because she's wearing him down. The persistence is just wearing him down. Now, the dilemma is, if you're not careful, you think, well, then we just have to wear Jesus down. We just have to wear God down until he gets tired of hearing us, and and then he'll eventually give us what we want just because we pestered him long enough. That's not what the story's about. The story is a parable of contrast. If If a judge who doesn't care anything about God or people will eventually answer a request because he's been badgered to, how much more will a loving, heavenly judge hear and answer our request when we're persistent? You know, some of us have been praying for things over and over and over, and we think, he's not listening. And this parable of contrast says, he, our God is not like this judge, this judge who does not fear God or does not respect people. He's not like that. He's different. So if you can get the request you're asking for out of this dishonest, dishonorable judge, how much more will you out of the heavenly father who's our judge in in heaven? So that was the first parable he tells. And then the second parable he told was the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Very common parable. We've, We've heard this a lot. A Pharisee and a tax collector go to the temple to pray. Pharisee stands off kind of by himself where everybody can see him, lifts up his head, talks in a loud voice, basically says, God, I'm so glad I'm not like other people, especially not like this tax collector over here. And then he goes through all the things he does. You know, I tithe of everything, and he's just rattling off his list. But in contrast, because these two parables are contrast parables, they contrast one thing with another. In contrast, the story picks up with the tax collector. The tax collector's off by himself. He doesn't lift his eyes to heaven. He keeps his head bowed, and he says simple words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, of these two, the tax collector goes home justified, which again would have rankled the religious leaders hearing the parable. It would have irritated them. Because they had no, no heart for tax collectors. Ta- remember, tax collectors were fellow Jews who decided to sell out to the Romans and collect taxes. And the Romans would say, okay, we want this much tax. Whatever you can get over that, you can have. So what are they going to do? Man, they're going to ramp up the extortion. They're going to double the taxes because that's how much money they get. And they were seen as traitors. And and unworthy of even being a Jew. So to think that the Pharisee was not justified and the tax collector was would have just made them angry. And so it's like as Jesus moves to the last week of his life, he's trying to make people angry. It's kind of what it seems like. The, the, The tension is just ramping up the closer we get to that last week of his life. So that's the things we covered, and then we hit these uh, takeaways. Because something is threatening to interfere with your agenda, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It just doesn't mean that it's bad. We think it does, it feels like it is, but it's like the Sanhedrin's plot. 
Raising Lazarus did not work with their agenda. Losing their place did not work with their agenda. But just because something doesn't work with their agenda doesn't mean it's bad. Mary and Martha, remember, they called out to Jesus and said, Lazarus is sick, please come and heal him. And Jesus stayed where he was until he knew Lazarus was good and dead before he moved. That was not part of Mary and Martha's agenda. But just because something doesn't fit your agenda doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Now, it feels bad until you get on the other side of it. Hindsight is always 20-20. I am so much smarter now when I look back than now when I look forward. You know, it, I'm much smarter looking backwards than I am looking forward. So, that was the first takeaway. No matter what good you do, someone will find a way to criticize it. Just bank on it. Matter of fact, some, it's probably not someone. It's probably someone's, plural. Uh, this has happened to me more than once over the last week. And uh, it never fails. When I stand up in front of you all and teach something or preach something, I can guarantee you I'm going to be afflicted by it all week. <laughs> and, and so I had this person that was being real, crit, really critical last week. And I mean, they were nailing me and I hadn't done anything and I'm moaning and complaining I'm complaining to my wife I'm complaining to God and 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 God goes didn't you just teach last week this thing here that no matter what good you do someone will didn't you just teach that and I went yep I did but it's true it's true you cannot please all of the people all the time Sometimes you can't please a majority of the people all the time. You have to be certain that what you're doing is right. And then you just got to keep doing it. So that was a good takeaway that nailed my hide this week. Another one. Often the healing we seek occurs while we're actively doing God's will, not before. Remember the lepers were healed on the way to the priest. They were healed while they were doing what Jesus told them to do, not before. And uh, I sure wish it was before, but oftentimes I have to step into the middle of what God's asking me to do before I see the results I want to see. Another takeaway. When God intervenes in your life, stop what you're doing immediately and express your, your gratitude to him before doing anything else. Just stop and say thanks. I see it. I get it. Thanks. I have a routine of a morning when I get up and go for a walk. <laughs> I get up and thank God that I'm breathing. And the older I get and the harder and faster the walks get, the harder it is to breathe. Uh, I thank him for, these are the simplest of things, I thank him that I was able to get up out of bed without assistance. Although some days it feels like I need it. I thank him that I'm able to dress myself and feed myself that I have eyes to read what I'm reading in the morning and ears to listen and that I can walk without fear of having to call the EMTs. Those are simple things. And there's so much more to thank him for. But we are, we, we are like teenagers when we relate to God because we have more complaints and more requests than we have thank yous. We talked about this last week. There was sometimes... 
And I think I told my kids this, you know, I looked at them one day and said, I just wish once you would come in and not ask me for something and not complain about something and just say, thanks, Dad, for being around. Thanks for giving it. Yeah. I wonder if God feels that way. Because we are very much teenagers in that regard with him. Another takeaway, if you're looking for God's presence and his work in your life, you can be assured of two things. One, it won't look like you expect it to look. And two, it's probably already happening right in front of your eyes. I mean, that is a pretty safe bet. Uh, it probably won't look like you want it to look. I know when I was, uh, I was really contemplating going into ministry full-time. I was really contemplating going to seminary, quitting my job, moving to seminary. I was just really not able to make that decision very well because I kind of liked my stuff and I didn't want to move and just all that kind of stuff. And I had a lot of trouble with it. And I was a youth pastor and associate pastor at the time, and my students one day said, hey, Sunday afternoon after lunch, come into the church in the gym and let's play basketball. Now, those of you that know me know that there is not an athletic bone in my body. And if there is, I will probably break it. That's just the way it is. And they had hounded me and hounded me, and I said, okay, I'll come. And so we lived in the parsonage right by the church, so it was like walk out my front door, go across my drive, and I was there. And so I walked out the door, and my wife said these words to me. Remember, you are not a young man anymore. I said, I'll be fine. Twenty minutes later, my students were carrying me back into the house. I had broke my ankle. I had fractured my ankle. Uh, Kept me off of work for three weeks. Did not look like God's will, but in those three weeks, I said a lot of things in my heart. We packed up and moved. It just, it's, it's what it took. I had the time off. <laughs> I was laying on my back because I couldn't get up and do a whole lot. So God kind of had me where he wanted me so we could work out some things. But it didn't feel like I expected it. I expected God to say, now's the time, go. Nah, he breaks my leg. And it's not the first time he's inflicted bodily injury to get my attention. But that's what I'm getting at. It won't always look like you expect it to look. And chances are he's in the middle of doing it already. All right. We are to be persistent in prayer, not because we have to nag God, not because we have to badger a response out of an indifferent God. That's not why we're to be persistent in prayer. We're to be persistent in prayer to build a relationship with a caring God. Because prayer is not asking stuff, not about asking for stuff. Prayer is about talking to someone. Prayer is about relating to someone. Prayer is about conversation with someone. Many of us think that prayer is about rehearsing a speech. It's not. Sometimes the best prayer time you can have is to say, God, I'm not going to ask for anything or say anything. I'm just going to be quiet. Those are some, man, I used to have those at seminary. I would get out of my car, I'd walk around the seminary campus, and uh, I'd tell you it was for my health, but it was really, we had two little kids. It was the only place I could find that was quiet. Uh, and, and sometimes I would just say, God, I am just so tired to talk. I'm tired of the noise in my head. I'm just going to walk. You just talk to me. If you don't talk to me, I'm going to assume you just want me to be still. 
Prayer is about that kind of conversation. And, and so, yes, be persistent in prayer, but not because you're nagging God, but because you're building a relationship with him. All right, I think this is the last one, then we'll move on to something different. Comparing yourself to others will foster pride, bring about dissatisfaction, and destruction. It just always does. You never win when you compare yourself to others. If you're comparing yourself to everything you see on Facebook and Instagram and social media, you'll be the most miserable of souls because nobody's posting their bad stuff. They're posting their best stuff. And the interesting thing is the pictures they're posting are not only their best stuff, but then they're edited and tweaked to make look better. I mean, with Photoshop now, you can't trust anything you see. If you compare yourself to others, you will be a miserable sort. But if you compare yourself to God, if you compare yourself to God, that will foster humility. And it'll bring about grace and growth in your life. And you just have to ask yourself, which am I more prone to do? Which, is more, which am I more prone to do? I can tell you I'm probably more prone to the former rather than the latter, but it's interesting how the latter changes your life more and more for the better. All right, that was a long recap. We've got to get into some new material. So let's look at this. We're going to look at Mark 10 rather than the Matthew passage. Jesus discusses divorce and remarriage. I always hesitate to wade into this because it is such a hot button, such a hot topic. But we got to go there because it's in the harmony. So. so Mark chapter 10, let's look at the first couple of verses. And he, meaning Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Verse 2, and the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, so you know why they're asking the question up front. In order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Okay, let's stop right there for a minute. Now, to get a better picture of what's going on, you really kind of need to compare the Matthew and the Mark passage. You really need to, I mean, some of these, some of these parallels or, or these harmonies, the stories are practically the same. And in this one, the story is very much the same, but there are some little nuances between the two. If you compare the two, it really gives you a much bigger picture of it. Uh, so both versions tell us that the crowds uh, were following him. Both, uh, both versions say the crowds were following him and he was teaching them. That's the same. Both versions tell us that the Pharisees asked this question to test him. That is the same. They're trying to trip him up trying to make him look bad by contradicting the law of Moses is what they're doing. So we hear that from both passages. But the question differs slightly between the two versions. Okay, so the question here in this is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now hold your finger there. Go to Matthew chapter 19. And I'll show you why this is important here in a minute. Matthew chapter 19. And when you get to Matthew 19, look at verse 3. The Pharisees came to him and tested him, that's the same, by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife, listen to the addition, for any cause? Okay, so the Pharisees were not just saying, is it lawful to divorce your wife? They were saying, is it lawful to divorce your wife for 
any cause. That's the difference between the two questions. Uh, Mark gives it to us kind of broadly. Matthew gives it to us a little more specifically. So here's what you see. At this time in, in the history, there were two debates between Jewish scholars about legitimate reasons for divorce. Okay? Now, one set of scholars said, this is just about adultery. This is the legitimate reason. Another set of scholars said, no, it's for any reason. Okay, let me show you why they had that debate. Hold your place there in Mark. Go to Deuteronomy 24. Hang a left, a hard left, all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Do you realize how many years it's been since we were through Deuteronomy? Sheesh. Probably been at least three. Deuteronomy 24. Okay, look at verse 1. This is, both of these sets of scholars were coming off of this passage. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes... Because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And then it goes on and on and on. Okay? So that's the, that's the passage. So one set said some indecency means she was unfaithful. There was infidelity involved. And another set of scholars basically interpreted some indecency as broadly, much more broadly. In fact, it, as, as time went on, it was like if you burned the toast, that was a reason enough, you know? And, and this is what they're haggling with Jesus over. And they feel like they've got him one way or the other. You know, it's one of those questions like, have you stopped beating your wife? You know, it's kind of hard to answer that well without being in trouble. And so they ask this question. This is the reason he's, he's doing it. Now look at Jesus' response to the question in verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? Very brilliant, because who's asking the questions? Pharisees, the experts in the law. They're the experts in the law. They're supposed to know the law. So he says, okay, what did Moses tell you? He's taking them back. He's taking them past the interpretation and back to the original law, which is really good practice. You know, over time, you can interpret a law in millions of different ways, and sometimes you just have to go back to the law. It's like going back to what does the Constitution say. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. What does the law say? Uh, very, I love that response. Uh, so, it goes further than this, though. Jesus is not just taking them back to the law. He's setting them up. He's baiting them uh, in, in, a, in just a brilliant, brilliant way. Uh, look, at, look at Mark 10. Look at their response in verse 4. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They said, in verse 4, they said, Moses allowed, okay, that's different than command. 
So right up front, they're not saying Moses commanded. They can't say that. That's not the truth. They say Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. All right, the Pharisees found a way to use the law of Moses to their own advantage. I mean, what's better if you want to get rid of your spouse than finding a clause in the law that you can make say that? You know? Now, I know none of you would ever think that, at least out loud. But I have a phrase in marriage counseling that I believe every marriage gets to the place where you look at your spouse at night and think, it would be so easy to put that pillow over their head. <laughs> now, you probably don't do it. It's probably wise, but I think every marriage gets to that, you know? Uh, every marriage, I always tell people there's a sweet spot in marriage. I wish I could tell you when it is. Not everybody hits us. They, people hit it at different times. But here's the sweet spot in marriage. The sweet spot in marriage is when you look at your spouse and in your head you're thinking, I would give a million dollars to change this thing about them that drives me crazy. And your second thought is, but if it never happens, it'll be okay. That's the sweet spot in marriage. I have no idea why I'm telling you this. Where was I going with all of this? Oh, the law of Moses, finding, finding a loophole to get out of your marriage. That's where all that was coming from. I get it now. Um, so they found this loophole and that they were using so they could get out of the marriage that they didn't want anymore. But look at how Jesus answers them. Back to Mark 10, starting in verse 5. Here's how Jesus answers them. And Jesus said to them, because of, the harden, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. I think it's interesting that Jesus uses the word commandment rather than says he allows you. But he says the reason this is there is because of the hardness of the human heart. Now look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, so now here's what he's doing. He went back, they were talking about interpretation, he went back to the law. Now he's going back further. He's going back to God's original intent. So he has walked them back to the place where they have no room to wiggle. And, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So he takes them back and said, okay, Pharisees, you're talking about an interpretation of the law. But what does the law say? Well, the law says this, which still gives them a little bit of wiggle room. And he says, okay, let's go back to the original intent. And there's no wiggle room there. Because it takes them back to before sin marred everything. Now afterwards, he and his disciples enter a house and they ask him what he said, about what he said. Now, Mark records this one way. So, look at Mark 10. And in the house, the disciples ask him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, remember, Jesus is talking about this frivolous Get out of marriage just because you don't like it. Peace. This is what he's talking about. And this is what he tells them. 
Jesus is talking about this using this divorce loophole, and he's closing that loophole. Now, Matthew's account is just a little different. Matthew has Jesus condense his teaching about God's original ideal on marriage, and then he adds a warning at the end of his speech rather than later in the house. This thing he talks about here, he adds at the end of the speech rather than in the house. But I love Matthew's account of the dialogue that takes place between Jesus and his disciples. Hold your finger there. Go to Matthew 19 and look at verse 10. This is one of my favorite verses. I don't know why, but it is. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 10. So the disciples said to him, now they go into the house and the disciples having the discussion. Mark, we've just read how Mark paints this discussion. Look how Matthew does the disciples said to him, if such, is the, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it's better not to marry. I thought for sure I'd get an amen out of the room there, you know. I, when I was wrestling about whether to enter ministry or not, here's the advice my wise West Texas pastor gave me. I was waiting for something really profound and really theological, and he looked at me and he said, if you can do anything else and be happy, do it. That was the advice I got about whether I should go into the ministry or not. If you can do anything else and be happy, do it. That's kind of what the disciples are saying. You know, wouldn't it be better just not to do this? And absolutely it would. I, I have couples that come into my office that say, it would be so much easier if I was just single. And I have singles come into my office and say, it'd be so much easier if I was just married. If you can do anything else, do it. And so the disciples asked, wouldn't it just be better not to get married? Listen to how Jesus responds. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, single people. We could get into more detail about that, but you just ate, so let's not do that. Uh, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are those who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. Basically what Jesus has said is not everyone's wired that way. When people come into my office and they've gone through a divorce, and so I begin to talk to them about the next relationship, and they go, oh no, there will not be another one. And I look at him and say, you know, I understand why you would feel that way because you went through a lot. It was awful. But if you did not need to be in a relationship, you wouldn't have been in this one. So you're probably not wired to not be in a relationship. So you're probably going to be in one. Now, there are some people that are wired to not be in one. They don't have to be in one to be, would, would they like it? Maybe, but they don't have to be in one. And I always told single adults, the the, here's how you know when you're ready for a relationship. When you don't need one. That's it. Think of it. When's the best time to buy a car? When yours is broke down by the side of the road and you absolutely have to have one, or you really don't need one and you've got time to make some decisions. It's the same way. It's the same way. And I've got to look back to see why I got off on that rabbit trail too. So, so the, the disciples are saying, you know, it just sounds too scary to be married. And Jesus is saying, you know, not everyone can do it. Not everyone can be single. It's not wired that way. And uh, it's just an interesting difference between Mark's 
account and Matthew's account, and I like that Matthew put it in there. Uh, now, just because this is a hot topic, I'm just going to pause for a minute and, and see. Do you have any questions, anything you want to argue about? I, I won't argue with you, but you can, you can argue. I'll listen. Um, anything you, this is a hot topic. Something you want? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. it's really easy to tell people, you know, God should be your relationship. You don't need anybody else. But, you know, we, most of us, most of us need somebody we can see and touch and feel until they're nagging us and breathing down our neck. And <laughs> then we question that. But, but most of us need skin on. Yes, neediness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything we do out of a, out of a state of neediness is probably not going to be good. Anyone else before we leave this topic? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. And he will bring another one to me on earth. Mm-hmm. And that if I speak my vows to that one, I need to keep it. No matter what goes on with that marriage, I need to go to God and keep praying. Mm-hmm. And that marriage is set the way he intended it to be from the beginning, like he said. I like what our pastor says about that. I like... Our pastor says, when, when you're talking about, quote-unquote, legitimate reasons to get out of a marriage, I've always loved what he's said. There are three legitimate reasons. One is abuse. One is abandonment. And I can't remember the third. It's another A word because our pastor loves that alliteration thing. Abuse. Adultery. Thank you. Thank you. I can't remember adultery. I can remember the other two, but I can't remember adultery. Is it time to go yet? No, not yet. But I love, I love the way he says that. I mean, that makes so much sense. And, and again, the Pharisees had it right in the sense that they said Moses allowed. Okay? There's a difference between allowed and commanded. You know? It, it's like saying, there's the door but you don't have to take it if you don't want to. And, and I'll just be honest with you. I've been doing this counseling thing for nearly 30 years, and I still don't have the answer to when you should take that door and when you shouldn't. That's got to be a thing between you and God. Um, this, is, this is hard stuff. Matter of fact, part of me said, I don't think I want to open this up to questions. Let's just move on. Somebody else. All right. Yes, ma'am.
Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. God bless you. I need as many of those as I can get. Well, and that's what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees. He took them all the way back to the beginning, to the intent. Just like Miss Mary said, if you get in almost everything, not just marriage, but almost everything, or probably everything, if you get your relationship with God right first, everything flows much better down from that. And, uh, and now, but this is a fallen world, and you can have your relationship with God right, and your spouse can be beating you up. And, and so I, I just have to put in that disclaimer, not everyone who gets their relationship with God right will have a good marriage. And, and, and we'll be able to stay in it. Uh, so we got to have grace. We, we need grace when it comes to this topic. Because we all know what we wouldn't do until we're in that situation. And then it's hard. And, and to be honest with you, people that are struggling in these areas, they don't need our condemnation or our judgment. They need our love and our support. They don't need to do things the way we want them to. They need to do things the way God is leading them. And we won't always believe that God's leading them that way. And we just need grace. And uh, if we had more grace, we'd have a lot less other things. Okay, I feel myself soapboxing, so we probably need to move on here. What time is it? We might be able to do, can I do one more? Yeah, let's do one more. And then we'll do a few... uh, Takeaways. Sorry, my brain just froze up here. And you guys know what happens when I'm shooting from the hip. So there we go. Let's do this one, and then I'll save the other one, because the other one takes, is going to take a little more time. Jesus welcomes the little children. You can find this in all three of the synoptic gospels. And, and just, I throw that word around like I'm really intelligent, and I'm not. Synoptic Gospels basically means there are three, there's four Gospels total. So Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they kind of parallel each other. The stories are similar, the timelines are similar, there's a little discrepancy, but they're pretty much the same. So those are the Synoptic Gospels. The Gospel of John, as great as it is, is kind of the odd man out. It's different. It's written different. The language is different. It just doesn't match the others as well. So you find this story in the Synoptic Gospels. We're going to stay in Mark since we're there rather than have you jump around a bunch of places. So look at Mark chapter 10. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, He was indignant. Okay, let's stop right there for just a minute. 
So parents are bringing their children to Jesus, hoping that he would bless them in some way. And interesting, Luke tells us, if you go to the Luke account, he tells us that they're even bringing infants. They're bringing infants to him. And, uh, but the disciples rebuke the parents. Now, we don't know why they're rebuking him. Maybe they thought Jesus is too busy. Maybe they thought Jesus just had bigger things to worry about than children. You know, and isn't that the way we are? You know, God's too busy. This is such a small thing. He's got bigger things to worry about. We do that. And, and in, in the sense, we become like these disciples in our own lives. I don't know what they were thinking. But Mark tells us that when Jesus saw the disciples rebuking the parents, says he was indignant. He was annoyed by it. He was frustrated by it. He, he was upset by it. Now, why do you think he was that way? I mean, it's not a picture we like to think of Jesus as being aggravated and annoyed and frustrated. Jesus loved children. Let everybody come to him. Yep. No one's insignificant. Yeah. And what other ideas? He thought it's probably that his disciples should have known better than to say that. <laughs> his disciples should have known better than to say that. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll tell you why. Refer back one chapter. Stay in Mark. Look at Mark 9 and look at verse 36. I think you hit it. I think, I, I think all the other answers are true, but look at verse 36. Mark 9, 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, that's what he's doing with the children here, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but he who sent, him who sent me. He had just told them this. Now, I read this, and I'm thinking, how dumb can you be? But remember my story about the takeaway that says any, no matter what good you do, someone's going to criticize you? I had just written that and forgot it. And, and so Jesus is thinking, I just told you guys this. We just talked about this. I think that was probably it. Look at his response. Look, go back to Mark 10. Look at verse the latter part of verse 14. Jesus said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Uh, what do you think he meant by Entering the kingdom of God like a child. Pardon? Okay, so so maybe he means, you know, when like he was talking to Nicodemus, when you're born again, it's kind of like a, a brand new childhood experience. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Trust. I'm sorry. 
A small child will trust you. They don't ask questions You know, when my children were little, I would enter a room, they'll be on the other side of the room, standing up on the back of the couch, jumping, saying, catch me. And I'm on the other side of the room. And they had no fear that I wouldn't catch them. I did, they didn't. Trust, that kind of trust. Yes? So you're saying that entering the kingdom like a child is receiving other children? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so maybe receiving the, child, the kingdom like a child is growing up in the kingdom? Yes, ma'am. Well, I can tell you that I don't know the answer to that question. I just don't. I think it's a myriad of things, and I think all of you have hit on it. I think it has to do with trust and dependence and innocence and, and all kinds of things. But the statement should cause us to ask ourselves, am I approaching the kingdom that way? Am I approaching the kingdom that way? Yes, ma'am. So, but in the context then, and if, if that's right, then in the context, it's basically telling us that we must enter in. It says, you, you must receive the kingdom like a child. So that would mean that we must receive the kingdom like the least of these, like a nobody, like the, the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak. And when we can get ourselves in that place, then we're ready to receive the kingdom. Could be. All right, we got, we got to, yeah, one more, and then we got to do some takeaways and get out of here. Free gift? Yeah. Yeah, my children felt like a, well, I won't say they felt like a free gift. Uh, they didn't feel free very often. Um, and I won't, well, actually, I can't even say that because sometimes they felt a little bit like a burden instead of a gift, so never mind, forget all of that. <laughs> Let's do some takeaways. This is what we'll cover next week. If you want to study ahead, we're going to talk about Jesus and the rich young man. I love this story, so I wanted to give it some time. We'll do that next week. All right, takeaway. When faced with a question of what's right and what's wrong, look for God's intention more than his allowances.
I mean, that's what the Pharisees were doing with divorce. They were trying to find the allowance rather than the attention. That's why God, for, why Jesus first took them back to Moses and then took them back to creation. So when you're trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong, don't look for what is the allowance. You know, I, my children, one of them in particular, you could see it in their head when you were laying down ground rules. They were looking for the loopholes, and they would find them amazingly. Uh, don't look for the allowances. Look for God's intention. Another one. When it comes to God's kingdom, we are called to be childlike, not childish. If you don't know the difference between the two, that's the problem. You know, and so many of us in God's kingdom are just childish. I watched some of the State of the Union address last night. Didn't watch all of it because, one, my attention span's not that good. And two, my frustration level's not that good. And there was stuff on both sides of the aisle to just be frustrated with. Um, but I'm telling you, I saw a lot of childish things last night on what pieces I watched. And, and it's really easy for us as believers in God's kingdom to be more childish than childlike. All right? I think we're going to stop there. I'll get you out of here about five minutes early to give us a chance to set up for men's forum. Any other questions? Well, I don't have any more answers, so we came to a good place. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I love digging into your word. I, I'm grateful how if we'll let it, you'll bring it alive. You'll help us to see it, feel it, be in it. And, uh, but more important than that, Father, is what we do with it when we walk out of here. And God, I, it's so easy for me to close this Bible, say, okay, I got that one taught, and just put it in the drawer and walk out of here and go through the rest of the week the same way. And uh, that's more of a travesty than I want to think about, Father. So I pray that you'll help us pull something out of this evening's study. Maybe it's just one thing. Maybe it's just a small thing. I don't know. But something that we keep tripping over all week. Something that's, that just keeps poking us in the eye until we get it and we make a change. And, Father, we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll see you all next week.